where we are in 19, we've we've seen uh, Revelation 17 and 18. We've seen spiritual Babylon fall, and then we've seen political economic Babylon fall in chapter 18. And now we begin to see the victory of Jesus Christ in um, chapter 19. So um, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you again for the opportunity to be together, the few of us gathered in your name. I pray that our hearts would be um, enlightened and uh, nurtured and strengthened for having been together. Bless this time. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, after these things, um, that phrase is used a few times. And, um, you know, really we're, we're at sort of such a um, conclusion of things that really you could reach back to like Genesis chapter 3 and, you know, the fall of humanity. Because what follows here, you know, after all of that junk, well, now how about this? And what we're about to see is really pretty amazing. We certainly can um, put Revelation uh, 17 and 18 in that context. I think it's appropriate to put all of the book of Revelation in the after these things sort of category at this point. But definitely most specifically 17 and 18. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord, our God. Now, a few things about this. Uh, the great multitude saying in unison, Alleluia. It, it is the idea of, you know, so massive, so thunderous that uh, it's awe-inspiring to just hear and see this many people in unison shouting, stating, Alleluia. Alleluia, wonderful word. Uh, hallelujah, Alleluia, same word. Praise Jehovah, God the Father, is, is what we're talking about. Yah is, you know, J-A-H. Uh, at the end, praise, jaw, alleluia. Um, it's actually a universal praise uh, worldwide. It, it means praise God. You know, when people say that, hallelujah, sometimes I don't even know that they're talking about praising God the Father of the Bible is, is being elevated and being glorified and being praised in that moment. Uh, these are they're small, nuanced things, but they're very significant to the entire passage. The next one is, um, it says, salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord. Uh, Greek language holds uh, the definite article, meaning the, right? Um, I, I use this in illustration, you know, people might say, you know, have you ever seen a big apple? And you go, like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, Wolf River kind of big. If I say to you, hey, have you ever seen the Big Apple? You know, usually most people, especially Americans, immediately go, well, New York City. The definite article gives a, a definitive understanding to what one we're talking about. So here, the definite article is assigned you know, to salvation. The salvation implying there is no other. Not through Buddhism, not through Hinduism, not through Islam. There is one singular salvation. So praise to God the Father of the Bible, right? No other religion here in this moment for what? The salvation and the glory and the uh, honor and the power belong to the Lord. So all of those things can't be ascribed to any other belief system. Ours alone, not because we are pompous and arrogant and claim them for ourselves, because God is the creator of all things and has claimed them for himself. You get an issue with that, you're going to have to take it up 
with the author of, well, everything. And he's made the proclamation. To the Lord, Kyrios, our God. We had a discussion this morning in Deuteronomy about the Lord, your God, is one. Um, so you have the plural Elohim, many gods, plural gods, are one. Unified, compound unity is what the theologians uh, insist upon. And there are many ways that the scripture uses compound unities. All the theologians that study this and want to put this in context go right back to creation. And God begins creation and then says, and there was morning and then there was evening the first day. That is literally the same akkad, the compound unity of two separate things, morning and evening, were in fact solidified as one compound unity one day. So we, we get the definitive understanding of that compound unity as God then says, let us make man in our image. We immediately are introduced to the plurality of God in compound unity. Hebrews, uh, we're studying chapter 1, verse 3 this past week, uh, midweek service. There, Jesus is explained to us as being the express image of God. Um, the Greek language illustration most commonly used by the scholars of that time the express image, the imprinted image is what they would talk about. And they would use the signet ring, which was um, like the checking account. It was the signature. It was the pin code. It was the authority. If you were doing business and you uh, were going to buy all of someone's grain, you sign the contract, uh, you melt the wax and imprint the family seal upon that signifying we are completely committed to this. That is us. That is us here. Um, a better one, I think, today, uh, and you've seen those kids' toys that are like a square block and they've got all those pins in them. You put your hand on it and it impresses out toward you. You're, you put your face in it and it sticks out. Uh, same concept. The, the impressed image of God. So all of creation, that which is physical, being a God expressing himself through that is Jesus. So the express, impressed image of God. So, you know, early Christians wrestling with the Jews theologically over this, the Jews are saying you have two gods. You have three gods. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And... and this expression was solidified in, no, this is a compound God. From the very beginning of Genesis, God is expressing himself as plural, you know, Elohim, plural gods, you know, as one, unified as one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were expressed in the beginning as one thing here. Lord, belonging to the Lord, kiriosk, authority, power, master, our God. The only God of the scripture that can claim all of these things. No other God ever has this authority. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So in particular, he's most directly reaching back to chapter 17 at that point. The conclusion of the judgment, um, we've talked about the fact that, you know, again, go back to Genesis and you have uh, Nimrod establishing the Tower of Babel. And that is the birth of this Babylonian religion that has the same uh, perverted elements in it all throughout human history. Whether you're talking about uh, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, 
you know, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, you know, the Egyptians, they all have uh, the same expressions uh, of uh, perverted man-made religion uh, in them. They have different names, you know, you have Ashtoreth uh, in, you know, one time period and later, you know, the, the Greeks are, are uh, declaring their loyalty to Diana. It's, it's the same thing. Uh, in fact, uh, many of the locations that had the idols of Ashtoreth in them were then just recognized later as being Diana. So there wasn't even a conversion process. It's just a different time period and a different group of people speaking a different language. Same idolatrous practices uh, extend all the way, and people get upset with me, but they extend all the way into Roman Catholicism. Uh, you know, Rome literally, uh, 350 AD, Constantine recognizing Christianity is taking over the world. He can't get people to enlist into his army. And I doubt it, but he insisted he had this vision where he saw a cross and uh, heard a voice say, go and conquer in this sign and awakens and declares to the world Christianity is the state religion of Rome tells all the pagan priests of the Roman Empire, you are no longer pagan priests, you are Christian priests, uh, convert, it comes in time, I'm, I'm sort of mashing it together, but you know they are raising questions about, well, what do we do with all the idols? What do we do with all of, you know, these, well, you know, make Semiramis uh, Mary, make her child Jesus, uh, you know, make you know, the pantheon of gods that we worship, make them saints, assign to them names of the saints. So they, they just transpose their pagan belief system onto Christianity. And honestly, that's where Christianity dies. Three, 350 years of just unchecked spread from Jerusalem all the way around the top of Africa, all the whole Mediterranean region, it has grown like wildfire without stopping. 350 AD, Constantine institutes Christianity as the state religion of Rome, and Christianity dies that same year. All growth halts, and, and a, a digression begins. And the deterioration and ultimate, what I would say, is demise of it. Here, your judgments are true and righteous. God has finally pronounced judgment upon this idolatrous practice that has been in the presence of humanity since the beginning, and now it's come to an end. And those particular things, avenging on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Those that would have called the world to repentance and correction, you know, the ministers, the servants, the prophets, all along the way, uh, murdered by her, the vengeance has finally come. Again, they said, this this great multitude that is speaking, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Um, you know, this annihilation that is preached, um, you know, that God is going to, yes, he's going to judge, but it's going to be, you know, a short-lived thing that he's going to wipe out uh, his enemies, and that'll just sort of be the end uh, of of those you know people's existence. Uh, scripture doesn't teach that at all. Scripture teaches, you know, we 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 use these terms like uh, you know, become a Christian, have eternal life. Um, yeah, that's it's accurate. It is accurate. Um, you know, don't accept Christ. Experience eternal death. You're going. You're going to be dying forever if you don't accept the salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. We were created as eternal beings. Well, where do you want to spend eternity? Is the question. In the presence of the Lord, or expelled from Him. So, you know, the emergent church in recent years. Authors like Rob Abel publishing his book, you know, Love Wins, uh, you know, saying that eventually uh, Lucifer himself will get saved. I mean, that's that's pretty blasphemous statement given what Jesus Christ 
said and taught throughout the scripture. What the scripture says is an eternal punishment. Hell is real and it lasts forever. Um, you know, there's, there's something to consider. I, you know, just there's an abstract thing I do um, regarding the existence of hell. I just had this discussion with a group of people in uh, our residential discipleship program. Um, uh, scientists uh, will ask, is there is there any such thing as cold? And people automatically go, well, of course. And then they explain, well, actually, there isn't that Cold is merely the absence of the energy that creates heat. So you're removing the energy, you know, through our heat pumps and pushing that heat outside and cooling the room. We're not actually pumping cold in here, much as it feels like it. Okay, we are getting rid of the energy that creates heat. Um, you know, then take a step further. Is there such thing as darkness? And usually when you're asking a class this, you know, they made the assumption, yes, there's cold. And then you show them, well, no, there's not. And so now they're kind of wary. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, now I don't know. And the truth is there is no such thing. Um, I mean, we can experience it. But again, once again, you're talking about the absence of the energy that produces light. So, uh, you know, you can't create a darkness gun and come in and touch it off and black out the room. Okay, you can interfere with the light, you can fill the room with smoke, you can do lots of different things, but you can't overpower that energy that's pouring into this room creating light right now. Um, you can diminish the light on the switch, shut it off, get rid of the energy source that creates light. And, you know, and this is part of what is being said by John about, you know, Jesus, that light came into the world and the darkness did not overcome it. Because the darkness actually has no strength against light. You know, if, if you've got a birthday candle and you light it in the darkest cave in the world, your birthday candle is going to overpower the darkness in the cave. Um, I, I spent some summers uh, in Plymouth, New Hampshire, and right outside Plymouth uh, is the polar caves. And you go way down inside the polar caves and they shut the lights off. I also uh, took students from this school and we went to Howe's Caverns in New York. Um, it's like, I forget, I'm probably exaggerating, but it's like 150, there's an elevator. It's like 158 feet underground. Uh, no entry point of light at all. Their, their elevator shaft has sealed off what used to be the point of entry now. And in both of those cases, they do a thing where they dim the lights and everybody gets nervous and usually, you know, a child or some lady is like, okay, you know, and, and then they shut them off and the blackness is amazing. But like I say, again, smallest light, you turn that on and it dispels all of the darkness. You know, now we are in House Cavern, you know, that the lights go out immediately, everybody pulls their cell phone out. You just activate the screen. You don't even have to find your flashlight, and you've got enough illumination. The pitch black, it is not a power. It's not an energy. It's not a substance. It's the absence of energy. Is there such thing as hate? And now, by now, people are really wary. No, uh, I'm just going to leave that. I'm not going to answer that. Um, because what hate is, is the absence of love. What is God? God is love. God is light. And eternity in hell is to be separated from all that is God. You know, the, 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 you know, James, the book of James telling us all good things come down from the father of light. So remove all that is good. Friendship and conversation and enjoyable temperatures and, you know, and suddenly you have to experience torment and pain and blackness and, you know, the absence of good in, in hell. So conceptually, you know, people that act like, you know, how could God, you know, send people to hell? How could, well, you know, C.S. Lewis is the one that said, no, God doesn't send anybody to hell. There's just two kinds of people in the world. Those who have said in their heart to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. 
and those that God has said, not my will be done, but your will be done. You don't want me, you want to reject me, then you have to spend eternity separated from me. So hell is humanity simply rejecting the goodness that is God. And, and you know, C.S. Lewis went on to say, you know, what other God can be described in history as literally having sacrificed himself in an effort to prevent people from going to an eternal punishment? You know, threw himself literally into the jaws of death to try and prevent that. If you are going to, you know, go out around that, you know, attempt to save you, then really it's on you. It's it's on the person who experienced. So the, when the judgment is stated and the smoke rises up forever and ever and everyone says hallelujah, it isn't even that sense of like, you know, I went to that great length of all those little explanations to get to the point of it's not that the people have some sinful sense of vengeance like oh there at last she got what's coming to her it's it's literally standing back and saying you know even in all of this your judgment is correct you know this this entity these individuals have chosen against you and and so what they are experiencing is good and right and proper it's it's in fact holy hallelujah praise be to god the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. That is that statement of so be it. And hallelujah. Who was that foolish politician recently that refused to say? He, he said amen and a women. You know, it was just, I was so embarrassed for him. It, it, it simply means that I agree with that and so be it. It has no gender masculinity, femininity to it at all. People have lost sight of, of what is being said. And, and there's a great gravity to this in that the judgment has finally come. Think about this, you guys. Really absorb the idea that you're here in this moment in future history and all the tension, all the pressure, all of the failures or potential failures or, you know, the struggle's over. The finality is you're watching it arrive. I mean, you're going to say, amen. Hallelujah. This is what a glorious state to finally cross this threshold and, and, and you know, be able to, I'm sure we've all, my wife just finished um, this semester of her college courses you know like a few nights ago at midnight handed in her last paper and you know it's like one o'clock in the morning and she's you know doing a jig and, you know, and i'm sound asleep gone to the world the, the when the pressure's lifted when 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 the weight is off when the glory of god reaches its conclusion the, the spontaneous outburst you know, these 24 elders, they're around the throne. They're, you know, we got to go back to um, Revelation 4 and 5 when we were getting those first glimpses of the throne room. They're bursting into spontaneous, joyous, you know, eruptive worship at this voice. And then the voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all, uh, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So now the commandment, of praise. Everyone's spontaneously doing it, but now we're even seeing that authority demand that uh, worship commence at this point. Verse 6, and as I, I, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns so omnipotent om, omnipotent all powerful reigns within this setting we get the spontaneity of response and that's a glorious eruption but then when the command comes there is a thunderous response you know and an exuberance to the command and and there's you know something to be said about the fact that, you know, the hearts were 
spontaneously responding in worship, but there's a um, a recognizable obedience that when the command comes, they exert the energy that uh, that there's a noticed difference. I, I think that there's an encouragement to us here in this world that you know there's a certain spontaneity that comes from us, our relationship with the Lord, worship, giving, you know, uh, working, all the things that we do in regard to our faith. But when you hear the voice of the Lord command those same things, there should be an even more exuberant response to it. And we have the recorded word of the Lord. So as we're studying it and as we're reading and, you know, God has told us to you know love our neighbors as ourselves and we turn the page and oh there it is and immediately my literal neighbor comes to mind then there needs to be a more exuberant response in, in my environment in my relationship with my neighbor that when the command comes from the throne and i recognize hey that's pointed right at me that's not that's not just the generic sense for hey everybody should be worshiping in this way you know it's as though the spirit has said hey will and you need to obey me in this in this way and so now thunderous response that come automatic response upon the command a more exuberant response comes also you know great multitude sound of many waters that's uh, you know, I've had a few occasions. Uh, we've we've been to Niagara, and to just the mass of water pouring over that it is intimidating uh, to consider the power that's behind that. You know, uh, you know, you see that that's that's what's being described here. The the great you know, multitude, many waters, sound of thunderings that would you know shake you know, a house, shake, you know, your current state where you are um, to to have that experience, you know, enough to where it would be startling and fearful. I was I was in a house in Brewer, Maine in the late 90s. I'd just forgotten this till this moment that was struck by lightning. And um, we were sitting in a living room, massive thunderstorm all around us. We were all at the windows you know, standing water in the roadway, just pounding, you know, leaving divots in the water, just the hail. Just It was already intimidating. And then all at once, the, the lightning hit the house. So you get the thunderclap and the burst of light at the same time. And the whole place shakes. And if you're thinking, how do you know the house actually got hit? Uh, it came through the electrical system of the house, exited a light fixture in the kitchen, and burnt a hole in the element in the stove where we were cooking macaroni and cheese. Just like blew a hole in the bottom of the pan, made the connection, made the leap from the, the, the light fixture to the stove. It was finding ground and burned a hole in the bottom. Ruined our macaroni and cheese, man. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and the stove, by the way, you know, um, that, you know, cliche was shocking. Yeah, it, it 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 shook us to our core. Everyone in that in the house, I think there were six of us in that house. And when that happened, you know, our our friend uh, Curtis had literally been standing there stirring that macaroni. And my friend Al was like, "Come check this out." He steps away, walks over to the window. They stand. He still got the metal spoon in his hand. Just stand there for like a minute and a half, looking out the window. When bang, the house gets hit. Grace of God, he stepped away from that stove in the moment. Really shook us to the core. That's, you know, what's being said. Voice of many waters, that it would be intimidating, mighty thunderings. Saying, Alleluia, again, praise uh, Yahweh, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Babylon's done away with. Religious system, political system, not going to have to worry about it again. We've crossed the threshold. You know, what we're going to see unfold at this point, marriage, supper of the Lamb, conclusion 
of creation, millennial reign of Jesus Christ, last definitive war between heaven and hell, and then we roll into eternity. New heaven and new creation, it's all done. You know, this is why there is such a thunderous response. Everyone in heaven on this side, on this team recognizes that's the victory blow right there. We, we have crossed the line. There's still going to be some struggles, but, but the victory has been presented at this point. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, several things we're going to look at here as we move forward. Um, there are two suppers here in the, in the end of this book that are described. Um, marriage supper of the Lamb, described here. And then there is the Feast of the Lord. And the Feast, I mean, they're not, people don't confuse them because the Feast of the Lord is when the Lord has wiped out his enemies and they are just laying strewn, dead in one great host. And God calls for all of the birds of the air to come and feast on their flesh. And the, and the scripture literally refers to it as the feast of the Lord. So this is the feast you want to be involved in right here, um, you know, where you've, you know, been submissive and, you know, have experienced his lordship. And now uh, the marriage of the lamb has come. We'll read through this. I'll probably layer over it a couple times here. Uh, she's made herself ready. Now, just want to get out ahead of a, a couple concepts here. Uh, her righteousness, or it's plural, righteousnesses is described. And here, making herself ready. And Jesus gives us really nice explanations about this is the work of the saints that you would believe in him who was sent, right? Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, what is our righteousness? Biblically, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we accept and it is assigned to us, right? We are saved by grace uh, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Abraham believed it was accounted to him as righteousness. So we shouldn't, you know, inappropriately ascribe um, her preparing herself as like making herself perfect or her righteousness as being something that she had, we as the bride of Christ had accomplished. And I guess I'll address that one too, because there's some conflict for certain people over what is the bride of Christ? Who is the bride of Christ? Because in here we see heaven descending later and it is described as the bride of Christ. And, and then, you know, the nitpickers get all up in arms and say, the church is not the bride of Christ. Heaven is the bride of Christ. And we don't prepare ourselves and we're not adorned and heaven is. And they go through this great thing. And, you know, as though the celestial city is the thing that God has been longing for. Okay, well, you got to view some things correctly, right? This is the tent, this current body, Paul said, is our tent that we live in and it's wearing out and you know every passing year it just seems to get worse but it's wearing out and Paul said at some point we're going to depart from this tent and we're going to have our permanent home and then he goes into a great explanation of what our heavenly body will be like so in that we're able to realize that the permanent dwelling place Jesus was talking about the mansion Jesus was talking about was our new body, that we're in this body for now, okay, you know, the the image that was given to us, Moses, build these things exactly according to the image, the pattern that you have seen, what was it, it was a tent, right, and then that tent was done away with, and they built a physical tabernacle, and still, those were the earthly things which were representative of the heavenly. We got to chapter 5, and we saw the real deal, heaven, God's throne, his dwelling place, the finality of things. Heaven is us, our 
permanent dwelling place. And there is a celestial city for us to dwell in, right? But God is not concerned anywhere near as much with the physical structure of, you know, precious stones and all that we see described as he is the occupants, us. We, we are the city, right? We, we say that of certain cities. You know, you talk about, you know, New York City, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, okay, the city, but without the people, not really a city, you know. It, it is the occupants of, of that location. Heaven is about the occupants. So I just I just say throw those arguments aside. You know, there are just guys that like to see their own blog finally posted on the Internet and, you know, see how many people have read it and get all excited about their own opinion uh, of things. Narcissism is a thing that only you can cure, so... You know, keep that in mind. Uh, here we have uh, this bride that is being described. The marriage of the Lamb's come. His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to, you, to be arrayed. Notice that. Granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness of or the righteous acts of the saints. And again, it's the righteousness as. I don't know why it's um, you know, written in such plurality that way, but it's, it's the collective obedience of uh, the saints and uh, you know, they're following the will and the command of God. Now, in this idea, arrayed in fine linen, something else comes up, and it, it portrays itself a few times in the book of Revelation, that you know, there, is that, I, I forget where the address, is. I think it's chapter 9, and uh, there's the hosts of saints that are under the throne of God, and they cry out and say, how long until you've, you know, avenged our blood and, and pronounced judgment, and a, and a white robe is given to them in that very similar reflection to what is here. It, it is the idea of Jesus Christ's righteousness being granted to us, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, the complexity of Aramaic in Genesis translated to Hebrew and then all of the Greek New Testament, uh, we lose some things moving Aramaic into Hebrew, into Greek in the Septuagint, uh, then into Latin, taking a short passage through German in certain cases, and then ending up in the English language, you, you, you scramble the egg along the way. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, they eat of the fruit, and they realize their nakedness, um, the way it's worded, scholars say it's possible, and I'm totally speculating on this, but they say it's possible that what occurred was that they became naked, that they were not naked previous to that. And some of the supportive passages that the scholars bring out are the fact that God is clothed in light, and he shrouds himself this way. And here, righteousness of Christ is presented, and the robes presented, and the white linen presented. The speculative thought is that they functioned in that righteousness until they rebelled against God, and the righteousness being lost, they suddenly were naked. Um, speculation, but possible. And now, at the end of the story, being clothed fully clothed, right? And, we're, and Paul tells us to put off the old man and to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ. And that as Christians, we should seek to be further and further clothed in Christ. You know, that concept that when the Lord looks upon us, what he sees is Jesus, not us. Thank God. Jesus camouflage. It's a wonderful thing. You know, you, you, you can hide in it. You can be cleansed in it. Your sin can be, you know, removed. I was going to say hidden, but really it's removed. It's done away with. So here, granted, arrayed in fine linen. Now, the Jewish wedding, and it's so interesting what went on here. 
here, and this is the image that's being imported to this discussion. Um, there were three levels to marriage. Um, there was, uh, first of all, the arrangement, not the engagement, right, uh, where usually parents would say, hey, you know, we, we hang out together, we do things together, and wouldn't it be great if our kids got married? And so, you know, swap goats or whatever and sign the paperwork and make the commitment to one another that your daughter's going to marry your son. Engagement, right? You, you, you come to betrothal next. So somebody else usually arranged engagement. There was no real commitment. It was, we've made this arrangement. Betrothal, Mary and Joseph, is the two individuals, whether someone else made the arrangement, the engagement, or they did, they come to a place where they say, okay, are we serious about this or not? Yes, we are. Okay. And they would go to the leaders of the community. That could be two or three people. If you lived in a little tiny location, it could be a great host uh, of uh, Jewish rabbinical leaders uh, if you were lived in a much larger community. And you would make the proclamation of, look, the engagement has been made, but we are serious about this. And they usually would say in one year, we're, we're going to have uh, the wedding ceremony and we're going to be married. And so they would draw up contract. And that might involve... I'm joking, but the, you know, the exchange of goats or property or whatever the agreement entailed. And once all parties were in agreement to that, the man and the woman would sign the document. Today, at the wedding ceremony, we sign the, the marriage license. At that time, you signed at the betrothal. You are now legally bound together. It requires a bill of divorcement to nullify what you've just done. The young man, if everything was right and possible, if finances were in place and we went strictly according to tradition, the young man would bring with him to the betrothal ceremony his best, most trusted friend. And he would be part of the ceremony, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, by the way. The son is going to marry the bride and, and he leaves his best friend with his bride and he protects the best friend, right? We today say best man, the best friend protects more than anything, her integrity. No one else gets to come along and say, wow, you're really beautiful. I'm kind of interested in you. What do you think you and I start developing a relationship? The best friend punches him in the nose and sends her, him on the way. And if she's got any grievance of, wow, he was a really nice guy. He sets her straight. And he keeps her integrity to the relationship she's committed herself to. She's bound by a legal contract. She can't express interest in anyone else within that. Bound to it. The best friend keeps it. The young man signs the document, leaves the best friend, goes home to his dad's house, and he actually builds a room on the house. In certain rare cases, historically, he would build a whole house upon the property. Generally speaking, the young men that were engaged in marriage at this point weren't emotionally, uh, spiritually, uh, financially ready to live completely independently. So they would build a room upon the house for uh, the, the family that was going to be formed, the, the man and wife. And usually they would begin this process when they were about a year away from completing that. Sign the document, leave the best friend, go home, finish the building project. And they would come back usually at midnight and uh, awaken her. Um, you know, Jesus talking about coming as a thief in the night and all of the things that we see about, you know, coming for the bride. This really... Jewish tradition only fits into pre-tribulation rapture. It's interesting. Because the son comes back in the middle of the night, retrieves his bride, and takes her home to the wedding feast. So when they get home, everybody's already prepared and celebratory, and the party begins. Okay. 
the room that he has prepared. And this is, you know, really personal, but he takes his bride into that room and the best man guards the door and he consummates the marriage with her to everyone's knowledge. And he comes out and announces her purity to everyone present. I mean, how, I mean, that's really far from what we would do today. Thank goodness. But you know, the point is to traditionally, scripturally, biblically, that's quite a picture that the Lord, you know, is presenting. And, and then they uh, spend basically, um, Everyone else is partying for seven days and feasting and celebrating, uh, but they spend a lot of time alone in, in that room for seven days during that period. Now consider seven years of tribulation. Come retrieve the bride, take her home to dad's place, and be in a level of intimacy that only the bride and the groom could understand there in that place that he's prepared. So, I mean, there are a number of things about wedding feast and what's being described right here. And you have to then take that and overlay that with the 10 virgins and the parable that's being taught there, right? Because it's a wedding feast. Now consider the wedding feast and the, the white garment that's given to everyone. And the, then the master of the feast comes and finds a man in his own clothes Right. My my righteousness ought to be good enough. Well, who are you to say I got to wear those clothes? And they grab that one and throw him out of the feast, according to Jesus, where there's uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a description of hell. So you can only show up in the presence of the Lord clothed in his righteousness. There's a number of things about this that are really, you know, picturesque and quite remarkable. So granted, verse eight and to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness as uh, you know, acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have uh, the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So a few things uh, to examine there. You know, blessed if you make it to the you know marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, the the point is blessed are those who have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who's been called? Everyone, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever. You know, I know there's great debate uh, amongst our Calvinists and our Armenian brothers. Uh, I understand what the Scripture teaches about predestination and the sovereignty of God and all of those things. It comes down to all through the Scripture, I see the sovereignty of God and the necessity of choice. We have to choose. People say, well, you didn't really choose. You know, God, God made you choose. You were powerless to choose. He, he elected you. Well, it felt like I chose him. So I'm going to just stick with that because the scripture says I have to choose. And, you know, I thought I made a choice. And if I get there and he says, no, you didn't choose. I chose you. I'm fine with that. You know, well, you know, then the argument begins, well, I really want to be chosen, but, you know, I don't feel like I'm chosen. Well, how about you choose God and just find out later? What a silly, confusing circle that so many people, I say, not only create for themselves, but also for people who would choose God. You know, sat in this room with a man years ago who's weeping over his sin and the way it has destroyed his family. And he, he says convulsively to me, you know, I just wish God would grant me repentance. Um, I think you're warping that passage of scripture. God has granted us all repentance. Make the choice, you know, 
you don't feel like it, that doesn't matter. You, you purposely and deliberately obey what the Lord has called you to do. That, that's, that's submission. That's what repentance is. You know, he's going through this great wrangling about, I am repentant. I, I have confessed my sin. Yeah, but you haven't stopped it. <laughs> you keep doing it, and you're destroying your family. You know, when, you, when you take you know, the doctrine of uh, you know, Calvinism or Armenianism, and you hold exclusively to those things, and you ignore other statements in the Scripture, you warp the sense of what God intends. Sovereignty of God, predestination, yes. Choice, yes. <laughs> you got to do both things. You got to submit to it. So in this statement, you know, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's anyone that would respond. Anyone who would hear the invitation and respond, oh, well, what about the man in the darkest jungle or stranded on that island who never heard? I don't know why people always want to pose these abstract questions. I, I know why they do it, because they're trying to create an excuse or a loophole you know, in the circumstances. Well, the scripture tells us that every man is accountable according to the degree of knowledge that he has. Okay. So the cannibal in the darkest jungle will be sent to hell and judged for his cannibalism. And for the person that says that's not fair, he never even heard the name of Jesus, never read the Bible, didn't know. Well, the scripture tells us that God's law is written upon every man's heart. And the confirmation that it was in fact written upon his heart was he did not want to be eaten himself. You don't want things stolen from you? You should not steal. <laughs> you don't want people screaming and yelling at you? You should not scream and yell at people. God's law is written on our heart, and we are all accountable for the degree to which we knew it, and we obeyed it or we disobeyed it. So, you know, to what degree did we know, you know, they, they talk about, uh, you know, the, the people that had no knowledge of God. They're, they have a knowledge of God. It's revealed in creation. And to whatever degree they understood it, they're accountable for their compliance to it or their rebellion against it. And that's, that's God's judgment, not ours. We don't have to sit around and debate about that. All that is, is again, people trying to make excuses for themselves. So uh, continuing, we're going to have to just end here because uh, there's no way I can even break into this next section. But we'll cover a couple more points in uh, verse 10. Fell at his feet, you know, upon the angel uh, making these proclamations and revealing these things to John. He falls down and worships the angel. The angel immediately halts that and says, hey, you know, angels don't get worshipped. God alone gets worshipped. That corrects the false doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Um, they both teach that Jesus is an angel. The um, Jehovah's Witnesses teach directly that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. So... They, they go through, you know, often people will say, you know, well, when they read the Bible, well, let's be clear, they don't read the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not read the Bible. They read a book that was translated by Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, that is called the New World Translation. Now, uh, you talk to the... Um, leadership of the Kingdom Hall, Jehovah's Witnesses, they insist Charles Taze Russell did not make that translation. Well, we know from the writings of Charles Taze Russell that he made the confession that he willfully altered the Bible in order to render the translation they currently use. So we could argue that all day. Bottom line, he created that translation. And in it, he changed all kinds of things. Um, one of the greatest elements that he changed was John chapter 1, verse 1. Any of us that are students of the scripture know John chapter 1, verse 1 reads, In the beginning was, God, was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. 
right? Russell changes it so the New World Translation reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, right? Adds an A, adds a comma, changes the uppercase G to a lowercase G. Rewrites the Scripture in order to make Jesus something less than God himself. Then all throughout the scripture, any point that makes reference to Michael the archangel, he changes the verbiage and the angle so that it sounds like Jesus Christ. They go through great efforts in Romans chapter, uh, Romans in Proverbs chapter 8, beginning at verse 21, which is the female personification of wisdom, right? And Solomon is admonishing us that like the dearest sister or the dearest friend, we should seek to develop a deep relationship with wisdom. She's more desirable than any other woman you've ever known or met. And he gives this female personification of wisdom. In the midst of it, at verse 21, uh, he makes this poetic uh, presentation of before the worlds were formed, I was brought forth. Speaking of wisdom, right? Before the foundations of the world were laid. I was at God's right hand as a master worker working with him. Wisdom is speaking. They make that out to be Jesus Christ. So they reassign the deity of Jesus to Michael the archangel. Right? Hebrews chapter 1, to which of the angels did God ever say, right? I, today I have begotten you. No angel should be worshipped. Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Not the Church of Jesus Christ, number one. None of them are Latter-day Saints, so the little badge is false, right? They are not an elder. They're 19 years old, and they aren't of the Church of Jesus Christ, and they are not Latter-day Saints. They say, and I'll just run through this really quick, they don't read the Bible either. They'll give you a Bible if you contact them and ask them, but they want to give you the Book of Mormon, and in the end, they'll tell you that the Bible we read from was warped and tortured and retranslated and rewritten by Christianity, and it's false, and you should never read it. So don't think that Mormons for one minute read their Bible. They do not. Okay, They read the Book of Mormon, and they actually do that rarely. They're only assigned very specific passages in very specific orders. But I'll tell you a little story because this is the story they tell. God the Father in eternity past was intimate physically with God the Mother. That's blasphemous within itself, but okay. God the Father and God the Mother had two twin sons. Their names were? Lucifer and Jesus. That reduces Jesus to an angel who was born from God the Father and God the Mother. Okay? God, recognizing the problem that humanity had on earth, needed a plan of salvation for the human race. So he inquired of Lucifer and Jesus and said, present your plan. And God liked Jesus plan better than he liked Lucifer's plan. So he said, that's it. You're the savior of the world. You're going to deliver humanity from their sin. Lucifer was so enraged that his twin brother had been made the God over earth that he set to work to undo his twin brother's plan of salvation. That's why we see all this. So when you're listening to Glenn Beck, and that man is talking about how he's a Christian, and this is what we believe he is a dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore Mormon, not Christian at all. And he'll even talk about Jesus, and he'll talk about salvation. That's not the same Jesus you and I worship. That's the half-brother of Lucifer, come from their fictitious story created by Joseph Smith. Okay? Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the occasion where you mention somebody's name, and they go, I know that person. And you're like, really? And he lives over there? Like, no, he lives over there. And you're like, well, he's like six foot eight. They're like, no, he's really short. Okay, we're not talking about the same person. You know what I'm saying? They've got someone else in mind. Uh, this is what's going on with the, the uh, Mormons, is they've got a different Jesus by definition. No worship of angels is permitted. We don't get to worship angels. It's, it's inappropriate. They are fellow ministers. A book I can recommend on angels, written by Billy Graham. It's simply titled Angels. 
amazing documentation from the scripture about angels and how they were created and who they are and what they do, all from the scripture. No imagination added into it. It's, it's simply a biblical explanation of who they are and what they do. And in particular, what's most unique is how they minister to us. They serve us. According to the scripture, I mean, it would be speculative and maybe even sacrilegious or blasphemous if I said this without the knowledge of the scripture. The reason we have all come to be believers is because angels ministered to us and led us there. They steered the circumstances. They put us in conversations. They stopped things and started things and worked on behest of God to guide us into the knowledge we currently have. Fellow ministers, they are also our guardians, physical guardians. Scripture talks about the angels who have guard over the children and watch them and protect them. So it's not just, you know, a wives tale. That is scriptural. That is biblical. I'm on the rabbit trail, so I'll just stay on that same subject. Joplin, Missouri, a number of years ago, uh, experienced an amazing tornado, devastated the entire city. In places, it dug into the earth more than a foot down, just wrecked everything. Days after the uh, tornado, um, there was a child drawing a picture, and uh, it's this huge creature with these amazing butterfly-like wings, all multicolored, holding a child's hand. And his mother asked him, oh, you know, what is this that you're drawing? And he said, this is the butterfly person that led me into the storm cellar. This is how I survived the tornado. And she's kind of weirded out by that. But, you know, kids are kids and imagination is imagination. And she's sharing that story with a, another mother later. And she starts to cry and gets the picture out that her daughter had drawn. That's very similar. Huge creature, butterfly-like wings. And this creature came to her daughter and led her into a public storm shelter where she survived and then another and then another and there are hundreds of children's stories where the huge creature not very human-like appears suddenly and just says big storm coming we got to go in here takes them by the hand they have no fear they're not scared and they go to the degree this has been documented that in the rebuild the story is told so much Joplin, Missouri, you know, they can't get all religious and all of that stuff and talk about spiritual things. But their symbol is a set of butterfly wings as a result of that. And everyone who experienced that has simply come to refer to them as butterfly people. So, you know, what do angels look like? Well, uh, at the beginning of this, some of them had four faces, you know, and had some pretty, you know, unearthly <laughs> look and appearance to them. What do children's uh, angels look like? I don't know. I suspect they have something like butterfly wings based upon, you know, I don't know. Joplin, Missouri, other locations. We'll see. We'll see what's going on. Magnificent, amazing, glorious, inspiring creatures. But in the end, they are simply a created being. Like we are a created being. You start examining the human body. And right away, you start realizing how amazing and magnificent we are. You know, and any, any portion of it, you know, I, I think it's worthy of just even just a brief description of, you know, the ear or the human eye and, and what goes on. You know, there's single muscle that helps rotate your eye on the outside of your eye socket. It passes through a bone structure pulley system because muscles can only contract, right? You can't push with your muscle, you're actually pulling. This muscle is contracting so your arm can go forward. So the same muscle needs to pull your eye both directions. It can contract, so it can contract and pull it this way. When it contracts through the pulley system, it pulls it the opposite direction. Go home and check this one out. Your eyes rotate in the socket in order to help scientific terminology to maintain proprioception, right? your understanding of up and down. Right? Vision has a lot to do with balance. So get real close to the mirror. 
You'll look weird, so do it when you're alone. <laughs> look right at one point on your eye. Find one fleck or one muscle structure on your eye that you can concentrate on and then tip your head. And what you'll watch is your eye rotate in its socket. Okay, I mean, 45 million cones on the outside, 45 million, 45 million cones in the center of your retina, 15 million rods on the outside of your retina, 45 million cones in the center of your eye uh, determine variance in color. Uh, 15 million rods on the outer ring of your eye um, uh, determine luminance, light and dark. Uh, shut off all the lights in the darkness. Uh, you don't need color anymore. Shuts off all of the cones. Leaves only the rods on the outer ring turned on. Flood the back of the retina with rhodopsin, a profoundly light magnifying chemical. So in about 20 minutes, you can see in the dark. Yeah. It's part of the reason it's so painful when somebody just flips the light on. Because the rhodopsin is still magnifying the light. And it takes about 10 minutes for it to extract it out of the back of your eye. So you were sound asleep and the alarm clock goes off and you flip on the light. And now you're sitting on the edge of the bed and you're trying to get used to it. And that's your eye making that adjustment. This is an amazing structure. What's most amazing and maybe grisly, as you now understand this, is this is actually your brain. Your eyeball is actually your brain. It develops with your brain simultaneously. Vision doesn't occur in your eye. This is simply a receptor. It conducts the vision into your brain. Your brain sees, right? Because it's upside down. Your brain is flipping it over all the time. This is a developed structure of your brain. If you go see an eye surgeon, they're doing brain surgery. And it is that delicate of a component of all of your nervous system. It's serious business. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We see something that's other than us and we fall down and we want to worship it. When it's a good, right, godly, proper being, it says, hey, stop that. <laughs> Don't do that. When it's an ungodly creature, demonic host, it says, yes, you should do that. You should be in submission to me and let me possess you. We've seen that historically over and over, right? As Satan says, bow down and worship me. The ungodly hosts do attempt that. Those that are godly say, stop. That also applies to human beings, right? Jim Jones, right? Guyana, a thousand people died when they drank the Kool-Aid. He said, bow down and worship me. Vernon Howell changes his name to David Koresh, leads all of those people to Waco, Texas, and he says, bow down and worship me. A created being. It's always demonic. It's always wicked. The proper approach is, yes, fearfully and wonderfully made, but worship belongs to God alone, no other creature. So we'll pick up at verse 11 next week. Why don't we pray? I'd say stand. We always used to do that, but th then I go out of the shot, and so I, I just stay in my seat now, so a little bit different. Father, thank you uh, for your love and your graciousness, your work in our lives, the truth of your word. The truth of this message, help us to be men and women that are submitted to it. Use us as your servants. Lord, help us to lead people into your kingdom. Give us opportunities, open conversations, Lord, that we would be able to see people become children of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.